This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Today on this episode, the unvarnished truth of what humans really want. And where are we getting that data from? Google, 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 the entire planet uses Google. It's a verb and a global technology company. Talk about good branding. It's always good to create a brand new word. Whether it's to research a pasta recipe or look up a song you heard on Yellowstone or even doom scroll, potential causes of joint pain, our Google search history leaves quite a digital footprint. And as Seth Stevens Davidowitz explains, that footprint can often tell a far greater truth than we ever knew. You're going to love Seth. He's actually a very funny, cool guy. He's an author, a data scientist, and he's a speaker who studies what we can learn from tons of anonymous data, big data. He wrote a book in 2017 called Everybody Lies. It ended up being a New York Times bestseller, an economist book of the year. He's an op-ed writer for the New York Times. He's worked as a visiting lecturer at the Wharton School. He even spent time within the belly of the beast as a data scientist for Google. Also has a BA in philosophy from Stanford and a PhD in economics from Harvard. He's a Jersey guy, and maybe that explains his love and fandom for the Knicks, the Mets, and the Jets, which probably makes his Google results full of disappointing sports updates. So to really understand what motivates humans, it's not the answer the search engines give us. The true data is found in the questions that are asked. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Seth, welcome to the Retire Sooner podcast. I, I don't know exactly where to start here, but I... I guess if we sum up your work and your latest, first, let's just start with this. Everybody Lies is your very popular book. And essentially what I've gathered from all of this is that you're able to figure out why we are lying by figuring out what people are really searching for. So maybe just explain to the to our audience here before we get into happiness, before we get into retirement, talk to me about your data science. Yes, yeah, so that was my first book called Everybody Lies. And it was how you can use uh, the internet to see who we really are. And a lot of it was analyzing aggregate, anonymous Google search data. And kind of the idea is that people are really, really honest. So, you know, there's some dark topics where if you ask people in a survey, you know, are you racist? Nobody's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, of course I'm racist. They'd say, they'd say, no, of course not. And then, but then if you analyze Google searches, you see, oh, these are the parts of the country that have the highest racism or questions about sexuality or, uh, you know, dark, 
but important topics, child abuse, abortion, do-it-yourself abortions. There are all these topics where people are typing on Google what they're really interested, really thinking. And, you know, by analyzing the anonymous aggregate data, you kind of get a better, more accurate view of humankind than we've ever had before. Well, let's get some examples of this. And, and I, I don't know if these are all, you're looking at big data. Now, and this is important to you. This is just anonymous data, right? Are you yeah, able exactly. to- Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tell us just about that for a second. Are you able to just aggregate? Is this- do you have to be working for a search place or you can you do no, this? No, so a outside? lot of it. So Google Trends is a tool that any, that's uh, available to anybody and you can see kind of where and when searches are most are made. Uh, and it's a tool. It's still underutilized. It's used more and more. When I first started, like I, I give a lot of lectures, uh, a speaker around, around the country, around the world. I first started describing Google Trends. I was like, what the hell is that? And now, you know, at least 60, 70 percent of people at least heard of Google Trends. I think a lot of people aren't using it as much as maybe they could be. And and again, it's just taking the raw big data and seeing what people care about, what what people are searching for. Yeah, exactly. Then how do you back into things like climate being a factor in, let's say, depression? Uh, the thought around when do you get hooked on your favorite baseball team? Like what ages do you get hooked? And, and that's fat. Let me start with that one just for a second. Cause that's fascinating uh, to me because I, I live in a melting pot city, Atlanta. You, you had, you don't have the strongest pro sport uh, loyalty here. I think it's because it's a newer, younger city where people have been moving and moving and moving. So you're coming from New Jersey or Pennsylvania for me, and you grew up kind of an Eagles fan, kind of a Phillies fan, but you don't hate the Braves. So when do you, do you ever switch over? The answer is not really. And then I see my kids, I got four boys and they're all very into sports. I find that they're, they're kind of into like 10 different teams because they like one player from this team. And I don't see any real heavy loyalty for, uh, for in pro sports when it comes to my kids. So tell me about when you get hooked on a team. Yeah, so this is a study actually it, using Facebook data, uh, likes, of different teams and you see that uh kind of the teams get a big bump among males if they were good when males were about eight years old that's the biggest bump so you know the the Mets my uh team uh they won a cha uh, two championships 1969 and 1986 they have the most fans uh 1977 and uh 1994 kind of when people were uh uh, or no, no, sorry, they have most fans among men born 1961 and uh, 1978. Kind of those boys were eight years old when the Mets won championship. And you see that kind of throughout teams that uh, if the team's really good at eight years old among boys, they kind of win them for life. Uh, now, I haven't seen how's that how that's changed. Uh, you, might, you might be correct. I've heard that there is some evidence that younger generations, the idea of a favorite team is kind of passe, uh, which is shocking to me. You know, that's kind of a big part of my childhood it was finding my teams. Uh, and I think, you know, people are moving away from that model. Maybe everyone's so into fantasy sports now. Uh, so it's much more about the players and, and the players all move around so much. Yeah. I think that's, that's interesting point you make is that you're right. They're into the players because they do care about their fantasy teams, which is really just about what player does what, not so much about a particular team. And here in Atlanta, the Falcons went to the Super Bowl my kids were in that sweet spot. You know, they were five, six, eight, nine, ten, and the Falcons lost the Super Bowl. 
And it was very depressing. It was like, because we grabbed it out of the jaws of victory and the jaws of defeat, whatever that is, because we almost, we, we were about to win the Super Bowl and then we let it go to the Patriots in the last, you know, we just, it was a disaster. And it almost crushed my children's loyalty to them, maybe forever. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't know. I can relate. The Knicks lost a championship in 1994 against the Houston Rockets. And I still think that may have been the darkest day of my life, like that game seven, <laughs> uh, which, you know, all the things that have happened since then, they don't really quite compare, uh, you know, that, that childhood brain. But I don't think it turned me against the team. So I don't know. Uh, well, what but, about, so what about this? So let's talk about, this is interesting. You do a lot of studies around depression in different states, how it's treated. And then just the thought around climate as a factor in depression. So how are you figuring that out throughout? Well, it just is very data. clear the Google search data that warm climates, I mean, it's not so shocking, but the magnitude of it is pretty unbelievable that warm climates just have way lower levels of uh, depression in winter months, you know, in Hawaii versus Chicago. Uh, you know, the depression rates might be similar in the summer months, but in the winter, it's just through the roof in Chicago and much lower in Hawaii. Uh, so that's kind of the value of these big, huge data sets. And other scholars have found similar things looking around the world, kind of the just how much climate seems to play a role in depression. And it's definitely something to think about if you do suffer from depression, uh, should you be escaping uh, those cold winter months uh, in, if, you, if you live in a colder climate. Yeah, it's more than just a, a passing experience. Uh, good idea. It's it's a very real clinical thing for a lot of people. Yes, uh, seasonal affective disorder. But the magnitude of it kind of did surprise me, uh, where I think I said that, you know, if you look at kind of just the data, it seems uh, being in a warmer climate in the winter months may be twice as effective as antidepressants for fighting depression. So, uh, and it's, it's not something that, uh, you know, a lot of people think about. I actually have suffered from depression a lot, and I live in New York, and I've been kind of down this winter, and we, I've taken two trips. I went to the Caribbean and then I went to Florida and I did notice like, oh, my mood's a lot better when I'm around sunshine and warm. <laughs> uh, but I don't, like I haven't made, you know, any drastic decisions like, well, maybe I should be in a climate like this more uh, regularly. Yeah, you need to listen to your own data, I guess. It, it, it is hard. Uh, you know, I have a whole second book, Don't Trust Your Gut, and I just present all this data on kind of how you should make the biggest decisions in life and you know, what career you should pick and how you can be happier. And uh, everyone's always like, you know, so how have you changed your life based on this data? And I uh, I kind of sometimes exaggerate the extent to which I've made life changes because I find it's just so hard. Uh, even when you know <laughs> the data, you know that it's good to escape a winter, a bad winter climate, or you know that, uh, you know, it, the importance of socializing for, for, for happiness, uh, or you know that, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur is a better path to wealth than being an employee. And you know all these things, and yet, you know, you're it's so hard to act on them for me, and I think for a lot of people. Well, let's just go right into that. I want to talk about don't trust your gut. And I think you say that we we make all these major life decisions flying very blind, I guess, or, or we're, we're using our, our gut. How so? Tell me more about that. Well, I, I just think of, I, I reflected back on my own life and you know, I'm a data scientist. I've written out two books on data science. I have a PhD basically in data science. I worked at Google as a data scientist. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying the contrast between all so much of my life has been devoted to data and the way I make decisions was really striking to me that I just never, like I was, I was single for, for you know, many years. I'm not single now, but 
when I was single, I was never like, let me look at the data on what I should look for in a partner or let me look at the data on how I can date better. Like just never. That's bizarre because I'm a data scientist. I believe so much in data. Like, why do I not do that? And think about my happiness. You know, very rarely was I consulting charts and data on what things would might make me happy, happier, how I picked a career. It was basically just totally random. I wasn't looking at data on what careers make the best, you know, financial, uh, offer the best financial opportunities or the best happiness or any of those questions. And you know, I figured if I'm not using data, then most other people must not be using data as well. And I'm going to just spend a few years uh, looking at the data on some of these big questions that every you know, pretty much everybody faces at some point. Well, let's go into that. So let's start with relationships. And I know you talk a lot about, I guess, the science behind finding somebody that's the right match. I, I Clearly, most of us do not do this. And it sounds like I don't know if you see yourself longer term being, well, an advocate to say, look, please listen to the data and implement it in your life. Um, tell us about dating and relationships and what, what are we looking for in partners if we, if we would just follow the data? Well, I'll tell you what data says, and I, I think you'll understand why this one is a particularly hard one to follow. But the data basically says that all of us are looking for the wrong things in terms of long-term happiness because, uh, you know, we're... Uh, many of us, if you look at the data from online dating sites, what are people drawn to? Well, you know, everyone's drawn, most people are drawn to hot people. That's kind of the number one predictor of, of dating success. Someone who's physically conventional. Can you attractive. define that for our audience? When you say hot, what does that mean? <laughs> I think most people know it when they see it, but. Uh, <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, cool, cool. It's, it's, if, if you ask people to rate someone one to 10, you know, the uh, researchers have said, uh, rate uh, th these people one to 10, you know, on attractiveness. And the tens are just going to get way more messages than the fives, the fours, threes. Uh, you know, although, uh, yeah, I'll get more of that in a bit. But uh, so, you know, okay, conventionally attractive people, tall people, tall men, uh, you know, heights, such a huge advantage in, uh, in, in, in males. Uh, men in certain occupations, women find more attractive lawyers, uh, firemen. Uh, even controlling for income, certain occupations do better than like accountants do tend to do very, very bad in, in online dating uh, on average. Uh, and not, not that an accountant can't do well, but uh, those are the averages. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, people in hospitality, males in hospitality do, do really bad. Uh, so uh, so we're looking for all these things. Oh, race. It's, it's mm -hmm. not talked about. There's almost more evidence for racism in dating than any other arena of life, I would argue. Whoa. Uh, there's how so, how so? Well, there's just overwhelming evidence that certain groups, Asian males and African-American women in particular, just are way less likely to get responses in online uh, dating sites. It's, it's pretty that, you know, and, and you could uh, correct for other factors like the income that people have and still uh, racial dynamics play a big role in how many messages uh, people uh, receive or how likely their messages are to be responded to. So we're looking for all these things. Then you, and that's been proven with uh, dating sites and then data from dating sites. So you compare that to what actually makes people happy. Well, there've been big studies using machine learning models, 11,000 couples. And it basically shows that everything we look for has just about no predictive power for long-term relationship happiness. So people who <laughs> okay. end up with someone hotter, like I didn't know, I'm like, maybe you get have a hot wife, a hot husband, 
Like you're going to have more wild sex. You're going to be, you're going to feel good every time you bring them to a party. You're going to be happy in a relationship, but there's basically no correlation between how hot your spouse is and how happy you are in your uh, relationship. Uh, similarly, okay. how okay. tall your spouse is, uh, what occupation they're in. So, th- so again, none of those things do correlate to happiness race. at all is what yeah, you're saying. Not, none of the things. And the things that do, like yeah, what the does? most, it's these, ve- it's these psychological traits. Like, you know those psychological quizzes? For me, my girl, my romantic partners are always giving me these psychological tests. Like, do you have, uh, you know, what kind of attachment style are you? And I'm always like, this is so annoying. I just want to watch, you know, a baseball game. Uh, like, let me do something else with my time. And it turns out these are like the only things that predict romantic happiness. So if your partner has something called a secure attachment style, which I didn't even know what that meant, uh, but you know you can take a test online and see, or you can give a potential partner more more relevantly a test. And people have secure attachment styles, uh, kind of the way they relate to other people, uh, probably due to childhood. Uh, that does pre- uh, increase your chance of being happiness. People are more conscientious. People have a growth mindset. People are more satisfied with life. Uh, so we over massively overvalue these superficial traits and I think money and looks, right? Money so and dating looks is and, money and looks, which yeah. mean nothing long-term. Very little long-term. Uh, money does have a tiny bit, but very, very little. And then the things, and we really undervalue these psychological traits. Which are, again, the, your attachment style. If you have a growth mindset, if you're a, a conscientious person that, that ends up correlating with higher levels of happiness over time. If your partner has those, yeah. You're going to be happier if you end up with a partner with those qualities. Wow. So we are, it's totally flip-flopped, right? We're thinking about the next six months and we're not, when we're dating, we're not thinking about the next like 50 years. That's the, that's the problem. That's part of it. That's the challenge maybe. (laughs) But you know, I tell people that I'm like, yeah, so don't worry about the looks of your partner. And I would just like, you, Seth. Uh, well, I don't know if I can <laughs> use that language on this podcast. <laughs> you can. It's this okay. is like the Joe F- Rogan podcast. Okay, they're like, F- or maybe we that. believe. I don't know. We can always bleep that part out. But no, I, okay. I, I, please, please speak as freely as humanly possible. Okay. The, the data like, science shows that we appreciate that. Yeah, my data science on how people have received my dating advice is they do not like it. They're like, tell me how to get a hot person. Which I actually have a section of the book that tells people how they can get a hot person. But that's not what give you us a be preview. For. Come on, give us a preview. Come on, give me give me well, a preview of that section of the book. Well, one of the big things about well, I talked about how looks impact your chance of getting a response, and you know that a ten reaching out to a ten, according to you know people who get, or asked to rate the photos, is you have a much higher chance of getting a response than a one reading, reaching out to a ten. Sure, but I was shocked. You know, not surprised at all. But I was shocked the odds of what happens when a one reaches out to a 10. Like, what's the odds they get a message back? Like a one. Like, this is someone, like, really at the bottom of the barrel, uh, you know, on physical appearance, <laughs> reaching out to, you know, a borderline model. Sure. And I thought, okay, what are the odds of the response? I'm like, okay, one in a billion. Like, yeah, uh, that's not zero, possible, I would say, like, yeah, one in a million, literally. One in a million. Like, that's just not going to happen. And it was around 14% if it's a man reaching out, and it's around 30% if it's a woman reaching out. In the data set they use, it could be a little different for different dating sites, and there are you know, some caveats. But I think the general point that asking someone out, you may have a higher probability of success than you think. And then you use that, combine that with basically, there's a law of statistics. If you have a 14% chance of getting a yes, 
and you do it 30 times, you have a more than 98% chance of getting one yes. So if each time you have a 14% chance and you do it one, two, three, four, five, keep doing it 30 times, you'll get up to a 98% chance. So basically, I think what a lot of people don't do enough is just ask more people out. Uh, you know, and that's certainly been, uh, you know, which, you know, because I think people are scared of rejection. I understand why people don't sure. do that uh, and humiliation. But I think a lot of people, you know, if you look at, sometimes I'm walking down the street I'm like, how did this person end up with that person? We uh, all like, say that, Seth. Yeah. We all say yeah. that. How did they? Did they just ask? Yeah, like, it was a numbers game. I think I'm concluding uh, that it is largely that they played the numbers game. And they uh, they asked out a lot more people and they got rejected a lot. If you say, if you see you know, a guy and you're like, how the heck did that guy end up with that woman or that man? Or how did that woman end up with that man? My read of the data, you know, I've looked at a lot of different studies, is probably they got rejected more than everybody else on their way to reaching that uh, that kind of person out of their proverbial league. It's a no <laughs> It's so funny and good. That is amazing. Is your cash working for you? For years, banks have gotten away with paying next to nothing for the privilege of holding your money. Today, investors have more options as the Federal Reserve has raised and raised and raised interest rates dramatically. Why not take advantage of it? If you're interested in finding a higher yielding solution for the safety allocation of your investment portfolio, reach out to my team at yourwealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R wealth.com. All right, so let's go with a slightly easier one. Well, no, actually, this one seems even hard. This seems way harder to me. Um, when it comes to success or people achieving success, uh, where what do we learn about that? Who ends up successful? What does the data science say around that? And, uh, and by the well, way, what do you? How do you measure that? You just talking about income, or yeah, you, there are many ways. Success and data science will tell different things on different measures and. You know, then there's a question, does success make people happy, which is a whole other question that data can help us on. But there's a sentence that really stuck out to me that the typical member of a top 0.1%, uh, kind of the typical richest American, is the owner of a regional business such as an auto dealership or beverage distributor. And that's kind of not how we usually think of a rich person. I mean, we usually think rich person like Hollywood, athlete, financier, maybe startup founder. And definitely there are lots of those in the rich field, particularly if you get to, you know, billionaire status, uh, they're going to be dominant. But if you get to just not, not just, but you know, the very healthy people making like one and a half million dollars a year, at least it's kind of dominated by this, these small business owners, uh, frequently in very boring fields. Like, uh, I, I find boring. You don't have to find boring, like auto dealerships or beverage distribution. Uh, and frequently it's, it's fields that have some sort of protection against competition. So auto dealerships and beverage distributors are kind of protected local monopolies and other fields have their own ways to kind of give you a little protection. So you kind of got to find this niche, unsexy area that has some sort of protection. And then you're just crushing it, making a couple million bucks a year, uh, living the dream. And it's, it's, it's not the path. Most people, when you say, you know, I want to be rich. 
you know, you moved to Hollywood to be an actor. You moved to Silicon Valley to start your company. Uh, you moved to, moved to Wall Street to be, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. The Wall Street to go into finance. And definitely those are options, but and most people aren't like, uh, you know, let me get into the auto dealership business or the beverage distribution business or, uh, you know, some of these other businesses that really are, allow you to crush it. Yeah, it sounds like that wouldn't even work on a dating profile. Beverage distribution. <laughs> what industry are you in? Yeah, beverage I think distribution. Beverage I'm gonna put I'm gonna put them over there with the accountants. Yeah. Well, if you're a beverage distributor, maybe you just have to put like your income like right there. Just be like <laughs> two million dollars a year beverage distributor. <laughs> you have you have data around making us a good parent, and I don't even know how you. How do we even measure? How do, what do you say is good? How do you even measure that? Yeah, so that's another area where. Uh, I, you know, there's obviously a lot of different measure measures, but one of the things that's surprising in the data is how little overall parents matter. So you would think, I think most parents, I'm not a parent, but also I just want to apologize. I wasn't dissing the accountants or, or the ones on the one to 10 scale or the shorter guys. I'm just presenting the data. <laughs> no, that's I, I always say that when I have, I say, listen, it's not that there's anything wrong against this group, that yeah, group. Yeah. I'm, it, like I, we have happy and unhappy retiree traits. And yeah, one yeah, of them, sure. I think one of them showed up on the unhappy retiree list was hunting. And I remember like getting real feedback, like that's, ah, you know, yeah, yeah. and I was like, no, 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 no. I always say it's the <laughs> yeah. data. I, it's not what I think. It's yeah. the data. I'm just, I, yeah, I'm just so presenting Nobody's going to blame exactly. you. Uh, so anyway, so the first thing in parenting, parenting yeah. in the data on parenting is that the overall effects of parents, the way they study this is pe adoptees. So sometimes people are, there are these adopting programs where it's kind of randomly determined uh, what, who ends up, who your parent ends up being. And it turns out kind of parents matter overall much less than just about everybody thinks. On most dimensions, income, education, there are a few things you can influence. Uh, one of the things you could influence most, actually, is how your kids think of you. Do they think they had good parents? So you can't change how educated <laughs> they are, how rich they are, how happy they are, but you can change you know, how they think of you, which is something that is pretty valuable to most, to most parents. But so you know, some of the big things, uh, again, education, income, happiness, Parents don't really influence things. Values, uh, parents aren't having a huge impact. So you know all these decisions we sweat about. When you actually look at the overall effect, the effect just isn't that big. Uh, that said, uh, there is one decision that parents make that may have kind of a disproportionate imp impact, and that's where parents raise their kids. So there's all this research again from tax data, which is just becoming available to researchers that where kids grow up just can dramatically impact uh, any outcome we, we can measure in tax data. So how educated they are, how rich they are, uh, whether they have, have kids as a teenager. A uh, neighborhood really does matter for uh, parents. And what is it about a good neighborhood? Like why are certain yeah, neighborhoods what is that? Uh, really good? Yeah, how, and we yeah, can how also, do you measure that? Or like what's good? Yeah, we can also compare it to uh, other facts about the neighborhood. It turns out a lot of the things you think might really matter. So, you know, great schools or a booming economy, those don't really matter a lot that much at all. The things that really seem to matter are quality, the qualities of the people in the neighborhood. Do people, are 2% of two-parent homes, uh, per, a percent of people with college degrees, percent of people return their census forms, a very, very random uh, measure. But it seems to be something about 
adult role models, giving your kids good adult role models. And there's actually also studies that if you have a daughter, if you raise her around a lot of female scientists, she's more likely to become a female a scientist herself when she grows up. So I think we don't think how much the other adults we're exposing our kids to are impacting them and, uh, you know, how they turn out. Uh, you know, and even, if, you know, apart from the actual place you live, the city you live, the block you live, who are you exposing your kids to? Like, are these people you want them to turn out to be? Uh, I think one one kind of thing, one of the reasons that parenting is overrated, but neighborhoods are underrated is kids have complicated views about their parents. So sometimes kids think their parents are the coolest people. Sometimes kids think their parents are the the least cool people, the people they don't want to be, the people they want to rebel against. But neighborhoods, kids tend to think they're pretty cool regardless. So they may rebel against you, but they're not necessarily going to rebel against the other people you expose them to. So I kind of recommend outsourcing parents parenting a little bit. Like expose your kids to people you want them to turn into. Parenting is overrated. Neighborhoods are underrated. Yeah. I'm I'm going to take that as probably the favorite thing I've heard in a long time. That Yeah, and that is true. I do think I think about it. Huh. Yeah, I'm thinking back as I I'm thinking back to when I was a kid, how much did I consider or look at and judge my parents on their friends? And I guess thinking back now, I don't know if I've ever thought of it that way, but I guess, yeah, it is, it is important. It's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, you know, the exposure, yeah, which, are the, the exposure. You know, which are their careers? You, you might see someone who, you know, is a beverage distributor and they're crushing it and they're like, have this great life. You're like, oh, I want to be a beverage distributor. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of ways <laughs> it can play out. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that is interesting. That, that makes a ton of sense. I think it was my, um, my little league, one of my little league baseball coaches, who I was always looked at as rich because we used to go over to his pool and like after games, he's the only guy with a big pool and he would pay for hamburgers. I always thought, wow, he's giving everybody hamburgers and hot, like this guy's got to be rich. And you know what? He was a small business owner. Yeah. He had an insurance agency in Southeastern rural Pennsylvania and probably made an absolute killing. He had like <laughs> yeah. a cool truck. I remember he'd drive this giant F-350 truck. He's got this great, you know what? And that's maybe why I wanted to become an entrepreneur. It's it's not an insignificant thing to, for me to remember in my mid to late 40s relative to when I was like seven. Yeah. And I still remember that. Maybe it had an impact. All right. What about, and, and this goes back to, I want to go back to success and then happiness for just a second. Is it is it mostly because you're a data guy, you can't, you're not really defining what success is. Is it, are we pretty much having to look at income data here or is there any other measure of success? I mean, yeah, sometimes like one thing I think about as a data scientist is you go to war with the army you got, not the army you want. Uh, like as Rumfeld said in Iraq, yeah. uh, you know, you go to war with the data you got. Uh, and, you know, there are great data sets that compare, you know, every kid in the United States to how happy they ended up. You know, we, the data sets that have every kid in the United States are administrative data sets from the IRS, uh, you know, income, education, uh, marriage. Uh, so it obviously would be great to also measure happiness on, uh, you know, that dimension. How much does a neighborhood impact adult happiness? Because I think obviously money is not, or edu and education aren't the only things that matter, but 
uh, on that question, there isn't data. So, how about this? What makes in now again? This is a harder question because it's even broader than success. Is is the is the, is the term happiness right? So I, we write about the happy retiree here. What do they do? What are the five financial traits of the happy retiree? What are the five life habits of the happy retiree? What? How do you define it? Or what? makes people happy and then what and what data are you finding to figure this out so there's kind of revolutionary understanding of happiness uh thanks to iphones uh so not iphones haven't made people happy they make people miserable <laughs> okay. uh but they actually have allowed us to understand basically how miserable iphones and other things uh make people there's this project mappiness that i became obsessed with it's really cool they ask people uh on their phone they ping them uh maybe multiple times a day, they say, uh, who are you with? What are you doing? And how happy are you? Uh, it's, it was founded by uh, George McCarran, Susanna Murado, two British economists. And uh, they built this data set of more than 60,000 people, more than 3 million happiness points. Like just this revolutionary understanding of, you know, kind of people ranking one to 10, how happy they are and what are they doing? Who are they with? And they ranked 40 activities, basically how happy someone is when they're doing each of 40 activities uh, on average. Uh, the number one activity was uh, making love and intimacy, uh, which wasn't too surprising, except it was kind of funny that people were stopping their sexual activity <laughs> to answer the survey. <laughs> I'm like, ding. Yeah, I'm like, oh, let me take a break from that to so tell happiness that I'm a 10 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right so that's like the un that's unshakable right that's boom that's making love yeah making is, love you're gonna, uh, you're, is, is uh number 10 out of 10 10 out of 10 uh but then other things near the top uh were maybe a little more you know not not shocking but gardening very high exercise high uh walking karaoke singing really high uh oh yeah and I actually did a study of my friend, Spencer Greenberg. We took these 40 activities and we just asked people to rank how happy they thought people, they thought they made people. And we can compare, okay, these are how happy people think these activities, the joy people think these activities bring. And these are how happy the activities actually make people. And let's see what activities are kind of overrated and underrated. Love and, that. Yeah. Yeah. And the overrated activities were like almost all the massive overrated activities all fit into a very similar bucket. Uh, they were things like resting, relaxing, watching TV, uh, playing computer games, uh, uh, social media, basically passive activities, watching TV, passive activities don't make people happy, but we think they do, they're going to make us happy. So lying on the couch and watching Netflix, you ask people, you know, how happy do you think that is? Yeah, you, yeah, that, that's a pretty good day. You actually ask people who are lying on their couch watching Netflix in the moment, how happy are you? They say they're actually unhappy. And the huh. activities wow. okay. that makes... give people more joy than we expect are things like going for a walk with friends, uh, yeah, going out with friends, uh, going to a museum or a show, kind of things that require more energy, those tend to give people more happiness than we expect. So I think we're all kind of fighting our own minds, our own laziness, basically, 
our minds are tricking us <laughs> to do nothing. Uh, to like lie on the couch, play that computer game, watch that show. Uh, and really, that's not a path to happiness. You got to go out and do stuff if you want to be happy. Well, I think it, this really relates back to the happy retiree. And I, and I, and I do the, the happiness results I've gotten. And I, I didn't do it in the big data way like you've done. But it, it very much, it seems to have this high correlation around anything that's socially interactive, whether it's exercising or any sort of sport, whether it's tennis or pickleball, something that is active is really ends up ranking really high on the list, whether it's physical slash social, maybe even better if it's both combined. But it's, a, it's I, I love looking at things as over versus underrated. And so again, resting, just hanging out on the beach doesn't doesn't really rank all that high necessarily. Well, unless you're having sex on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> what what is the? You actually talk about the ultimate thing in the world yeah, when yeah. it comes to like pure happiness is what? Tell our audience. Yeah, I said what that the data driven answer to life is being with your love on an eighty degree and sunny day, overlooking a beautiful body of water, having sex. Uh, because those are actually the <laughs> highest ranked of everything. So the highest ranked people. To be around as your romantic part, person to be around as your romantic partner. Highest ranked weather is 80 degrees and sunny. Uh, highest ranked environment to be in is uh, by near a body of water. And highest ranked activity is sexual is have, is intimacy. So you put them all together, it basically converges on sex on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, there's a reason that that a perennial drink was named that many years ago. Um, what about so what water? Where, how do you, how did you get the water data? Yeah. And like and how how are you? Tell, is it just very highly ranked search that there's tons of people looking for water? No. So the water stuff is again the Mappiness Project where they compare they, because it has GPS of using people's <gasps> phones. They look where people are, and if you're near a body of water, you get a boost in happiness. Warm water, yeah. Warm and water, and it boosts happiness, yeah. Uh, in a good neighborhood. <laughs> well, if you want to raise kids, if you're raising kids, yeah. yeah. If you're going to have kids, um, <laughs> let's talk about money for a minute. Is there? Um, have you found any correlation between more income? Well, first of all, there's a, there's the, the there's the distinction. There's income and then there's overall net worth or wealth, right? So your ta tax structures typically are, are, are probably looking more towards income and it's a little harder to judge wealth. But again, if you have a billion dollars, you're probably getting millions in, in dividends alone. But my but my question then goes back to, did you see a correlation between money and happiness? Higher so plateaus? You there's, a, there's a popular study from a long time ago that said that uh, happiness plateaus at $70,000 a year. You might've heard of it, heard it. So like kind of sure, up until yeah. then there's a big effect, but at 70 K it kind of stops. That's actually not true. Better data has come out and it finds, uh, that happiness, there's no point that we found where happiness plateaus. It increases, uh, throughout the income distribution. That said, it increases in what statisticians call a log form which is basically doubling your income increases your happiness the same amount. So you need more and more income to increase your happiness. And going from 40,000 to 80,000 has the same effect of going from 400,000 to 800,000, which has the same effect of going from 4 million to 8 million. So basically you need to, 
uh, you know, the, the early effect, the, the effects at higher levels uh, are, are smaller. Uh, but but they're, they, they, and, the, and the other thing to note is the effects aren't as big, and this gets probably to your happy retiree study, the effects aren't that huge compared to other things. So people with a net worth of $8 million are happier than the average person. But the happiness boost of having an $8 million net worth is only about half as large as the happiness boost from being married. So in other words, uh, you know, money, having an $8 million uh, net worth is going to help. But just keep it in perspective that just getting married is uh, given would give you twice the effect of 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 a net of of in happiness of that net worth boost. So someone who's working nonstop and doesn't have any time for dating just to get that eight million dollar net worth and sacrifice their friends that's probably not the best path to happiness. Uh, like the things that matter more, friendships, uh, marriage, relationships, those are kind of bigger. Uh, those have bigger impacts on your well-being than money, but money does does have an effect. You're a data scientist, so I would ask you, I, I the way I look at the money data, at least the, the research that we've done, is I think of it as this plateauing effect, but it continues to rise as income goes up, or net, actually net worth goes up. But I call that diminishing marginal returns for each new dollar of happiness. Like. Is that, would that jive with you? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's kind of this curve, that a log curve that just slows down. So, except yep. there okay. is some evidence. Uh, there's another study that says that there is this gain at, at the level of about $8 million. They interviewed like a, people of a wide range of wealth. So there may be, my theory on this. So, so one thing you also see in the happiness data is that doing chores really sucks. Uh, like people are not happy <laughs> cooking, cleaning, waiting on a line. Like that's just not, you know, that doesn't make people happy. And I think there is a level, you know, you talk about living on dividends. If you have a net worth of $8 million, you know, 4% of that is already what? 320, yeah, 320K. Uh, you pay a little tax on that. You're living at a level where you can outsource, you can have a housekeeper pretty consistently, uh, you know, live in a person. Uh, you can kind of outsource a lot of the drudgery of life. And I think that does uh, help a lot. Okay, so you're saying data did see at least some sort of material, at least a little bit of a boost at the $8 million net worth level? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Interesting. And, and so it's a little jump up. And and you attribute that back to, is this also from the data or is this just- No, this that's my hypothesis. I don't know the reason for that, but okay. if I'm thinking about- why would 8 million kind of reach that point? That's when you have such freedom to get out of doing the things you don't want to do and devote, you know, devoting your life to, you know, uh, you know, if you look at the studies on what makes people unhappy, a lot of things that make pe tend to make people unhappy are things you kind of have to do in the maintenance of life. So working it, for example, uh, this is kind of depressing. Working was the second least happy activity. It was just slightly above being sick in bed. Hold uh, on. Okay, so gee, you got to be kidding me. So no. out of the 40? Yeah, out of the 40, the uh, this is George McCarran and Alex Bryson. So Give the, me the bottom couple here. That's crazy. Yes. Yeah, so I, I actually, I, I would have told, I actually thought you were going to say like working was number like five or no. six on the list. 
No, uh, okay. working, working is very low. Is, it's number 39? 39, yes. Sick in bed is number 40. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of depressing, isn't it? That's amazing. Yeah. What what's what was 30, like 38? Care, care or help for adults. Uh, you know, not telling oh, yeah. people do that often, but if you're caring for mom or dad, uh, that doesn't make people happy. Uh, waiting, queuing. Waiting in line? Yeah. Uh, administrative finances, organizing. In a meeting, a seminar, finances, class. Yeah. Ooh. Traveling, commuting. Oh, and yeah. House- Commuting just alone is yeah. 34. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And housework, chores, and do it. Housework and chores is 33. So, one of the things you see in the activities at the very bottom is they're the annoying things that you have to do as a part of life, right? So, you can't not wait in lines. Uh, you can't not work. Presumably, you have to feed yourself. Uh, you have to take care of administrative finance organizing. You might have to commute. You have to do housework chores, do it yourself. So I think the fact that those activities, perhaps not surprisingly, rank so low is one of the reasons that people above a, wor- a net worth of $8 million or $10 million do legitimately get a boost in happiness. Because if, if your net worth is that high, you are able to do a lot more, fewer of those annoying things. Sure. Yeah. You're not as, yeah, you're not, you may not be working. Um, yeah. A lot of these are outsourceable. You're right. Yeah. At that level. But, all, but only at extreme le- levels of wealth. You can't really uh, stop working. At, you can't stop work, stop working and stop doing chores uh, if your net worth even three or $4 million. So maybe you could stop working, but you'd have to live a frugal lifestyle and do a lot of the chores. So you can't, the only way to stop doing both is to have a really high net worth. How about the, I know that's something you talk about as the work trap. Can you explain that? Well, just that work, you know, does, uh, you know, it is the second lowest ranking activity. And uh, they also, from the same happiness project, they look at uh, what people are doing while they work. And my read of the data is the only thing that really makes work tolerable is working with your friends. So interesting. Yeah. So if you're if you're at work but you're also with your friends, then work is not so bad. Uh, if you're if you don't like the people or you're by yourself, then work's going to be pretty tough. So I think that's something that people undervalue in picking a job or deciding whether to stay in a job. Do you like the people you work with? How about wealth building? What are some of the biggest misconceptions around becoming wealthy or wealth building? Or is uh, that... Well, the fact that a beverage distributor is the is one of the more likely paths to that was definitely... Uh, uh, yeah, I guess that's... <laughs> a misconception. Uh, definitely the importance of owning something uh, rather than being an employee... Uh, that's also clear in the tax data. About 80% of members in the top 0.1% own their own business. So again, you see, you know, a lot of TV, you might see CEOs and, you know, employees. That's that's really not, you're pretty capped there. So, uh, you know, even if you're on a pretty lucrative employee path, it really doesn't compete with owning 
uh, your business. There, there's a fun fact that uh, the richest, it was uh, pointed out by the data scientist Nick Majuli, the richest NFL player in history is Jerry Richardson, uh, who also okay. became the owner of the Carolina Panthers. And he played in the NFL for two years. And then he stopped playing and he bought up a bunch of Hardee's franchises and became a billionaire. Uh, and you compare that to Jerry Rice, you know, the best, one of the best wide receivers of all time. Jerry Richardson has 30 times the net worth of Jerry Rice uh, because he owned his product in a way that Jerry Rice never, never did. So even, you know, obviously Jerry Rice still made a lot of money and more money than uh, most, most of us could dream of making. And being an NFL star is a legitimate path to wealth. But it, it still, it doesn't really compare to that. The fact that he he's nowhere close to the richest NFL player, or, or that you know Peyton Manning or any of these guys aren't close to the richest NFL player. That's this guy who owned a lot of Hardy's franchises does show the value of owning. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, think about Shaq. I watched the Shaq documentary the other day. He he's legitimately, I think, halfway to a billion, and he owns a ton of Pizza Huts and he <laughs> franchises. So he's a real he's a business owner. The um, the how about this? Let's go back to we're talking about building wealth and success. One of the uh, ideas I think you talk about and don't trust your gut is about looks and oh, yeah. success. What's that uh, tell, to explain that to our? It's kind of sad. Uh, retire sooner audience. <laughs> it's kind of sad just how much looks matter in like every dimension of life. Uh, so there's a study. I, I find this sad. I don't know if other people find it sad that. You try to predict who rises at West Point, who's like who rises in the military, and you have, they they've looked at all kinds of data. You know what was their GPA, what's their family backgrounds, uh, what were their athletic uh, accomplishments, and the number one predictor of success in the military is having a face that other people rank as dominant. So basically, forget everything. If you just look like you should be dominant, you will rise higher in the military and. Uh, this improvement in politics that looking competent is one of the biggest predictors of a politician winning. You can predict 70% of Senate races just based on uh, which candidate looks more competent, which again is sad. We'd like to think, you know, the winner is going to be the one with the, uh, you know, the best ideas or the smartest, the hardest working. It's frequently is someone who just looks the part. Uh, there are also studies, these are even more depressing looking baby faced is a massive predictor of being uh, uh, judged innocent in grand juries. So just like, ah, that guy couldn't have killed those people. He look, look at him. Uh, he looks like a, a, a you know, cute. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a little depressing uh, how much looks matter for success. Wow. And, and anything on income and looks? Have they done studies on that? I'm yeah. Sure. I mean, also just that looks are a big predictor of income. But one of the things I did, I did this uh, little study on myself uh, where I could just, I tested, I created using AI. I expect nobody to do this because you have to be nerdy than me. Uh, different versions of myself, <laughs> uh, versions of myself with different hairstyles, different glasses, no glasses, smile, no smile, beard, no beard. And I asked people to rank kind of which one looks uh, the best on many dimensions. And I found out I look the best with glasses and a beard. Uh, so now I usually wear glasses, except when I'm on a podcast interview because I'm too close to the screen. But now I usually, my look is uh, glasses and a beard. 
uh, which is apparently the best version of myself, according to the data. <laughs> <It's> all, according <laughs> but I'm to like, the if, data. If it matters so much, I might as well figure out how I come across, right? Well, okay. So you, and this is something that we, we touched on earlier is that you, have you, you were saying that it's hard for you. And I think it's just hard for people in general to take the data and use it. Or are there any, or it, what do you think the easier things are for you to use out of your data? So definitely the beard thing. So now I definitely always keep my beard because it, uh, and, uh, people take me more seriously with my big full beard. Uh, it makes you look more prominent. More yes. prominent, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you rise quickly in the military. Plenty of gray, uh, an increasing amount of gray in it, I think will just only help. Uh, I think some of the happiness stuff I've used, but it's hard. Like I, I still, yeah. you know, I still find myself, you know, my friends invite me, hey, you want to go out and, you know, go to this show? And I'm like, mm -hmm. ah, but, you know, there's a Knicks game I want to watch and I just want to lie on my couch and watch the Knicks game and, it's really hard to overrule, you know, even though I know the data so well, I know the data says, go out, go out with your friends. I find it hard to do. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, but, but I think it's helped on the margins knowing the data. Uh, and you know, I don't have kids when I do have kids. I, th I think I will maybe there, there, there's a website. I talk about the book opportunity Atlas where you can see how good every neighborhood is for raising kids. So that's definitely something that I would look in if I had, uh, look at if I had kids. Uh, so I de definitely there are areas where I, where I am using it, but it, it is. Wait, a so is that a, is that a, uh, is that something you have online or in, in yes. you're saying in the book or yeah. online? Online the opportunity, opportunity Atlas. Atlas. Yeah. Uh, huh. So you could really zero in on what a zip code or even further. Than yeah. That? Census tracks so even smaller than zip code. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, I'm going, I'm, I hope mine ranks higher or else I'm moving. I'm telling you, I'm going to go look at this as soon as we're done. And yeah, I'm yeah. Gonna, if it's not good, I'm moving. <laughs> How, um, so you've tried to implement some of this, but this is just like the, the habits of everything that we know. We know we should eat the Mediterranean diet. We know we need 30 to 45 minutes a day of vigorous exercise. I mean, we know all that stuff, right? We just, it's just, I don't know why, maybe that'd be an amazing thing to figure out why is it so difficult to do the things we know we are supposed to do can we, can we get some big data around that or do you yeah, already I know think the answer to that? that that may be a follow-up book like here's all the things you should do and then the next book would be here's how to actually do them uh which is you know yeah would be useful i mean another one at social media uh there's increasing evidence that social media is terrible for our mental health uh you know particularly teenagers but for lots of people and they've done experiments where they've asked people to quit Facebook, to quit TikTok, to quit Instagram, and they report uh, big increases in happiness, a uh, big decrease in depression. But, you know, I've known that, and I still find myself spending much of my day on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and, you know, so I think, you know, the next, the next level is using this data to really, you know, learn to do these things. Because it, it we didn't, some of these things, you need the data first to say what you should do. So we didn't know before seeing the data just how bad social media can be for mental health. But once we have that data, the next level is, okay, well, how can you actually stop doing these things that are bad for you? So is it that well agreed upon, right? I mean, so, so you got, there was a period of time where 
the thought is, oh, well, social media, how can it be bad? You're connecting with lots of people and your old friends. Right? And then you hear studies that friendship and close friendships in America have gone down by 50% of the last 25, 30 years. So what happened with social media from thinking it might be a pretty darn good thing to just almost the consensus says it's really pretty horrible. Is that, is do, do most people just agree that it's I just, terrible? It's a common, it's just so many studies and so much, it's just data. I mean, you look at the rise in teenage mental health problems. It's shocking how high depression rates have risen among teenagers, particularly teenage girls. It almost perfectly tracks uh, the smartphone, the rise of the smartphone and the rise of social media. And then these studies, like I talked about, where they're literally randomly asking certain groups randomly assigning people to groups and one group there's no intervention one group is paid to stop using facebook and they just report a large decline in uh depression and other mental health problems so uh you know a lot of these things it's just you're waiting on the data you're waiting for the academics to look at it and uh, i think you know the academics have looked at it and the you know the research is pretty overwhelming how many people read the books they buy? <laughs> uh, very low. That's a study by Jordan Ellenberg uh, where he uh, analyzed Kindle data and how often people make it to the end of books. And for nonfiction books, like the books I read, science books, pop science books, uh, you know, the numbers are 3%, 5%, 7%. It actually motivated me. Uh, my first book, Everybody Lies, I... I was struggling so much on the conclusion. I want a perfect conclusion. And I was, you know, torturing myself, taking walks, showers, everything. You know, what's the conclusion? Then I read that Jordan Ellenberg study. I go, oh, F it. Uh, <laughs> I don't care. I'll just, you know, phone it in because nobody's reading anyway. You know, I, I the, the hard work's behind me. <laughs> So that allowed I'm me to done. finish. Three, only 3% of it. Now, what about in a, in a fiction? So some of the, yeah, oh. some of the, you know, some of the addictive, you know, romance uh, fiction can be 70, 80%. So some of those can be, can be a lot higher. Okay. Yeah. The, have you ever done studies around <laughs> the, the ro romance and fiction novels that, that I've seen for my entire life, but I've never <laughs> know who actually reads them? Are those a thing? Uh, it's just, somebody must read them. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, I don't know the demographics. I could guess them. I haven't seen this, the, the demographics, but, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of deception about what books people are reading. Uh, a lot of people probably aren't are a little embarrassed. I've done some work on that. That uh, you know, if you look on social media and what people report they're reading, it's always intellectual stuff. It's you know, The Atlantic <laughs> right. and uh, you know, nonfiction books. Danny Kahneman, The Economist. Book. Yeah, and then <laughs> and then if you look at what actually people are actually reading, like the sales data, it's National Enquirer and romance novels. So you know, I think people are embarrassed by uh, their taste for those. Uh, that, that material. Yeah. I, I don't see how people don't want to, want to read your two books. Everybody lies and, uh, and don't trust your gut. I, you know, I didn't ask you this, maybe it's rhetorical, but what's your explanation around why everybody lies and do they, do they really, does everybody really lie about everything or just like a few things? I mean, I think there's part of the reason we lie is it's not, it, it can help us advance. There's a strategic element to lying. So, you know, if you, uh, if you're on a dating site and, you know, you exaggerate uh, your income or your height or you minimize your age and, you know, those mm -hmm. can allow you to get more dates, the lie might eventually be uncovered. But uh, if you're, you know, yeah, you know, a lot of lying, people lie in their resume and 
or shade the truth. You know, you don't want to say nobody on their resume is like, yeah, I wasn't a great employee there. Uh, you know, I, 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 it wasn't my best work. I, I didn't do much. I slacked off. I was on social media much of the day. Everyone lists all their, you know, grand accomplishments. Uh, I think that's probably smart. So there is some, uh, some, uh, some sense in which lying, uh, makes some sense and does serve a strategic purpose. Uh, I think we also lie to ourselves a little bit. There's, uh, there's a great line from George Costanza in Seinfeld where he said, it's not a lie if you believe it. So is that credited to Costanza? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, it's Costanza line. And I think that kind of shows that there's value in if you, if you lie to yourself, then you'll be more convincing to other people. So if you think of yourself, I would, you know, there, there'd be studies that 90% of engineers think they're above average engineers, which is, you know, only 50% can be impossible. Yeah, it's right. possible, but maybe it's good to think you're an above average engineer. Cause then you're, when you're applying to a new job and you're trying to impress uh, a new potential boss, you'll be more, you know, uh, persuasive in claim your claim that you're a great engineer rather than real, you know, a more realistic assessment. Parental concerns, sons versus daughters. Oh yeah. That's just Google search data where, Parents are much more likely to ask if their son is a genius or is gifted, and they're much more likely to ask if their daughter is overweight or unattractive. Uh, it's it's uh, much more much more uh, intrigued by the intellectual potential of their uh, sons, and much more concerned about the physical appearance of their daughters. And that's again, that's just that's seeing what people are caring about. That's you, you would never, you'd never read that in a parenting book. Well, and that might be parents may be lying to themselves. They may not think they might have a son and search is my son a genius and think if they had a daughter, they'd ask the same question. But the aggregate data says that that's probably not true. So maybe we'll we'll wrap it up here, um, and maybe the data is the same for podcasts. Nobody ever makes it to the end. So I'll phone this last question in. <laughs> If you were to, what, in your opinion, if you were able to wave a magic wand and actually listen to your data, I'm sorry, enact or act on your data, then you're uh, approaching retirement. You're somebody in the, you know, you're 60 and you're getting ready to retire. What data would you encourage them to really look, take a hard look at? What matters? You, you talked about what matters when we pick a spouse, even though we don't look at it, what matters if for the 60 year old American to have an awesome retirement? I would say your relationships with other people are the biggest predictor of happiness and the time you spend with other people. So put much of your energy into close friends, romantic partner, uh, and enjoying your time with them. By the water. By the water. <laughs> awesome. Amazing. Hey, y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. 
This information is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. There is no guaranteed offer that investment return, yield, or performance will be achieved. Stock prices fluctuate, sometimes rapidly and dramatically, due to factors affecting individual companies, particular industries or sectors, or general market conditions. For stocks paying dividends, dividends are not guaranteed and can increase, decrease, or be eliminated without notice. Fixed income securities involve interest rate, credit, inflation, and reinvestment risks and possible loss of principal. As interest rates rise, the value of fixed income securities falls. Past performance is not indicative of future results when considering any investment vehicle. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. Investment decisions should not be based solely on information contained here. This information is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment, tax, estate, or financial planning considerations or decisions. The information contained here is strictly an opinion and it is not known whether the strategies will be successful. The views and opinions expressed are for educational purposes only as of the date of production and may change without notice at any time based on numerous factors such as market and other conditions.